Last weekend, Sherry and I were not here. We went to visit her mom in Mayfield, Kentucky. Does Mayfield, Kentucky ring any bells for anyone? Just this past December 10th, around 9.30 at night, an EF4 tornado ripped through Mayfield, Kentucky. The tornado was massive and violent. Wind speeds for an EF4 tornado are clocked between 170 and 190 miles per hour. The tornado that started in Arkansas was one mile wide, and it was on the ground for 164 miles. 164 miles of devastation. For us, that would be like traveling from Winchester to Roanoke on I-81. I've seen videos of this sort of thing in the past. No doubt you have as well. But it's nothing like seeing it in person. Mayfield is devastated. This usually quaint town has a town square with a beautiful government office building in the middle of that square. It has a massive steeple on top of it. That massive steeple was completely blown off and the walls of the government building look as if it was hit by a missile. Across the street, the only thing left of the First National Bank literally are the steel beams and the concrete elevator shaft. The dollar store, which we have visited many times, gone. Literally, just not even there. All that's left is a concrete slab. Neighborhoods. As I drove around, neighborhoods are full of demolished houses, twisted trees, and debris everywhere. Metal, wood, plastic just litters the ground. A refrigerator here, a toilet there. I even saw a pickup truck that had been flipped over and is now on top of a pile of debris which may have been its former home, the garage, I don't know. And that's the landscape, as far as you can see. Demolished homes, piles of rubble, twisted, broken off trees. I've just never seen anything like it in my entire life can only imagine how the residents of Mayfield feel. As we drove through, we just kept shaking our heads and saying to ourselves, how in the world are they ever going to rebuild? Our sermon text this morning uses a devastated city as an example of devastated lives and devastated humanity. Lives and humanity so devastated by the tornado of our own sin that we will never be able to rebuild it ourselves. Never. 
but God can. My prayer this morning is that you will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ restores and rebuilds what sin has ruined. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to Isaiah chapter 54. If you're using the black Bibles at your seat, it's on page 615. Isaiah 54 is our sermon text for today. Last week, Alan, my fellow elder, did an excellent job teaching Isaiah 53, one of those mountaintop Himalayas of Scripture, right? I was sort of glad I was gone so that I didn't have to try to live up to the magnificence of Isaiah chapter 53. But Alan, you did a great job. Thank you for teaching us. Chapter 53 explained that God's servant, God's son, God's king, must suffer to save God's people from our sins. So just like a sacrificial lamb, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that the Lord laid all of our sins onto His servant Jesus Christ on the cross. And that Jesus, again, using the words of Isaiah 53, that Jesus, like that sacrificial lamb, bore our griefs, was pierced for our iniquities, and was crushed for our iniquities. And then by his wounds, we are healed, friends. Isaiah chapter 53 is a beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is the doctrine where the innocent is substituted for the guilty. The innocent suffers the penalty for sin so that the guilty can be made righteous and then set free. Our sermon text today, Isaiah 54, shows two beautiful images of what the suffering servant accomplished. Isaiah 54, image number one, tells us that we are like a deserted wife who has been restored. And the second image that we see in Isaiah 54 is that we are like a devastated city that has been rebuilt. God's suffering servant of chapter 53 restores and rebuilds God's people in chapter 54. Friends, that's the gospel. So let's read Isaiah 54. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to show you the two images as we go along, but please don't let my words distract from God's words. Image number one, verse one through 10, 
God's people are like a deserted wife who has been restored through the suffering of the servant. God's word, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isn't that beautiful? That's the first image of a deserted wife who's restored. Now the second image. God's people are like a devastated city that is rebuilt. Verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, Storm-tossed and not comforted? Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, 
for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of the coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. That's God's word to us this morning through Isaiah chapter 54. Praise God for it. So I hope that you clearly see these two images in chapter 54 that show us what the suffering servant of chapter 53 has accomplished. What has he accomplished? He has restored God's people just like a wife that's been deserted now brought back by her husband. And he rebuilds God's people just as if they were a city that had been destroyed by an enemy or an F-4 tornado. These two images I want to share with you this morning teach us four lessons. I encourage you to write these four lessons down as we go through them. I think that you will find them helpful and cause your heart to worship and be encouraged. Lesson number one, these two images together teach us that we are deserted and devastated. Isn't that why this language is used? Isn't it to show us our true condition? That we are that woman who cannot produce fruit? We are like a city that is devastated by our own sin. The words that are used here throughout chapter 54 are an apt description of our condition. It's true in verse 4 that we are ashamed and confounded, disgraced, shamed, and bear a reproach because of our sin. In chapter 11, it's true that like this devastated city, we have been afflicted, storm-tossed, and we don't have comfort. It's true in verse 17 that we face an enemy and that enemy's weapons against us are very effective and very successful. This is an apt description of humanity under the curse of sin. And if you think about it, of your own life apart from God. It's certainly a description of our world apart from God, isn't it? Look around and see the devastation that is going on in our world. Look around and see how we have deserted our husband the Lord God of the universe. 
Lesson number one, we are deserted and devastated. Lesson number two, we're unable to restore and rebuild ourselves. We've learned for 53 chapters now that the sin of Israel demands that they be rescued. God's judgment against sin, they cannot push away. God's judgment of sin is severe and it is sure and they can't escape it. They need to be rescued from it. We are unable to restore and rebuild our own lives. Here's the thing, though. Very oftentimes when we feel the brokenness of our own life, we might try to rebuild our lives. We might try to rebuild our lives through something like self-improvement, reading some books, taking some courses, maybe a podcast or two. We might try to restore and rebuild our lives through health and fitness, through applying ourselves to good works or, or maybe diving deep into religion. Meditation. We, we might try to restore our lives by uh, pursuing moral perfection. We see the brokenness, so we try to restore. Maybe we plunge ourselves into success at work so that at least one aspect of our life is right. But these solutions show that we've actually misidentified our brokenness. We're not broken because of our lack of education or our lack of skill. We're not broken because we lack finances or opportunity. We're not broken because we eat too much or exercise too little or mess up too often. We're broken because we're sinners. We're broken because we are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And we live under the curse. We are born sinners and we prove it every day by our own sin, don't we? And we can't change that condition. But God can. And he has. By taking our sin and placing it onto his son, his servant, and allowing his servant to suffer, to put our way our sin, uh, to put our sin to death, to bury it in the grave, and then to raise victoriously over it so that he makes us New kinds of people. As Ben said last week, no longer Adam and Eve kinds of people, but now Jesus kinds of people. We can't do that. We can't change our nature no more than a leopard can change its spots. But God can miraculously through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That leads me to lesson number three. We are deserted and devastated. We are unable to restore and rebuild ourselves. But lesson number three, the gospel of Jesus restores and rebuilds what sin has ruined. That's what Isaiah 54 teaches us. The gospel of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, chapter 53, restores and rebuilds what sin has ruined, chapter 54. And what a beautiful picture. And the picture is given so that we will respond to it. Look at the very first word. What's the first word in Isaiah 54, 1? Sing. I mean, what do you do after you read the Himalaya of chapter 53? You sing. It's such good news that it fills your heart with joy. And Isaiah 54 invites God's people to respond to what the suffering servant has accomplished for them. The gospel of Jesus restores deserted wives. Verse 1 through 10, the first image that we saw was that we're like a deserted wife. This is a hard picture. At first, I wondered if it was two pictures. Is this first a picture of a barren woman and then a picture of an unfaithful wife? I believe that it's the same person. And that's really, really sad. There is no doubt that the the lack of the ability to bear fruit for God is the people of God's problem. And it's no doubt that they are unfaithful. But what we see here in verse 1 through 10 is that this wife was rejected because... She was unable to bear fruit. She was barren. See, in that culture, they had a completely wrong conception of barrenness. There might be people here who are struggling, wishing that you could have children. I've prayed for you. And I I don't want these words to be hurtful to you at all. Maybe ladies who've gone all of their life who would love to have had children, but they are not able to have children. They're what the Bible talks about here, barren. So please don't hear this as any, any, anything against your condition at all. What this is talking about is a misconception in that society that goes something like this. When the divine command, the very first one, is 
be fruitful and multiply. And then the Jewish people know that the divine blessing is that what? Children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Then they say that equals barrenness is divine judgment. Wrong. Misconception. But unfortunately very true about that culture and that society. So if a man married a woman who could not bear him children, whether to uh, keep his name going or to bear children for the farm or whatever, then he would throw her away. She was useless to him. That's awful, friends. That's why we have agonizing stories in the scripture about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth. These all were women who had fertility issues. They could not at one point have any babies. And what's the point? They couldn't change their own condition no matter how much they wanted to. And their husbands couldn't either. But these stories of Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah and Elizabeth tell us what? God can. And he does it through miraculous means. So Isaiah uses this illustration because it's the miraculous intervention of God that was necessary to change her situation. Here is this barren woman who was deserted by her husband. And Isaiah says, you want to know how good salvation is? Look at verse 1. Sing for joy, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. What does that cry aloud give you images of? He tells you, you who have not been in labor. Why? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And he goes on to say, enlarge your tent. You're going to have so many kids and they're going to come from the nations of the earth. The suffering servant of chapter 53 makes the barren one fruitful. So much so that she's going to have to enlarge her tent to handle all of her children. We're like that deserted wife who has been restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4 through 10. Fear not. Listen, you don't have to live in fear anymore. Why? I know you're ashamed. I know you're confounded. I know you feel disgraced. I know that you have shame from your youth. All I'm doing is reading the, the adjectives in verse 4. I know that you feel like your barrenness is a reproach. But look at verse 5. You have a different kind of husband. You 
have a different kind of husband. Not one that breaks his covenant and throws you away and deserts you. Verse 5, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, one who buys you back out of your difficulty. Who is this one? He's the God of the whole earth. Verse 6, what does this husband do? He calls her like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. He gathers her to himself, calls her to himself, and tells her that everything is going to be okay now. Why? Because he has compassion on her. Look, verse 7. With great compassion, I will gather you. Verse 8, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The people of God at this point in Isaiah were where? They're in Babylon. How do they feel? Ashamed. Grieved. They feel the burden of their sin. Why are they in Babylon? Because of their unfaithfulness. Because just like God showed Hosea, they're as unfaithful as an adulterous wife. So God brought judgment against their sin, allowed Babylon to conquer them, take them into captivity, and there they sit thinking, God's done with us. And God says, no, I'm not done with you. I actually did that because I love you. So he says, there in verse 7, for a brief moment, I deserted you. Verse 8, in overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But notice what word you keep seeing over and over again. But, but, but. But with great compassion, I'll gather you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. And he said, these days, the the days where you are in Babylon and I am judging your sin, they're just like the days of Noah when God judged the earth for the heinous sin of mankind. And then what did God do? What's so famous about the Noah story, kids? What's so famous uh, other than the ark and all the cool animals about the Noah story? We still have it today. It's the rainbow. And what is the rainbow a symbol of? Don't diminish the beauty of the rainbow. It's a beautiful symbol of what? God's promise. God's gospel that he has put away his anger and will not judge any more. Symbol of the rainbow, symbol of that cross says the same thing. 
here? Look, God says, verse 9, So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. Listen, the mountains may be departed, the hills. What's more solid than a mountain? Those things might go away. Will you read the end of verse 10 with me out loud, everybody? But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Oh, man. I'm just telling you, that's worth, that's, that's worth coming to church for. God says to his wife, who feels utterly deserted because of her own sin and unfaithfulness. I haven't deserted you forever. Just like Gomer, who just kept on going after lover after lover. Do you know the story of Gomer that that, uh, Jimmy read for us earlier? She was taking Hosea's money and buying her men. What does Hosea do? Forget you. I'm divorcing you. No. God said, Hosea, your marriage is going to be a picture of my marriage with my people. So what does God tell Hosea to do? Take her out into the wilderness to a nice B&B and woo her back to yourself, buddy. Spend your money and woo her. God in Hosea 2.14 says, I, just like unfaithful Gomer, I will allure you back to myself. Oh, man. That's grace. That's covenant love. That's faithfulness. Praise God for His mercy to sinners like me and you. And so we see here God's steadfast love and God's covenant of peace. Friends, we are like a deserted wife. And the suffering servant died and rose again to restore us to our relationship with God again. Image number two. Image number two. We're like a devastated city that will be rebuilt. Just like a devastated a devastated city, like take, for example, Mayfield that we talked about earlier. How will they ever rebuild? That must have been how the people of God felt in Babylon. Their city was ransacked by the Babylonians. How will we ever rebuild? I mean, Jerusalem is God's capital city in God's kingdom for God's people. And he allowed this enemy pagan nation to destroy God's city? What does he say is going to happen? Just like a devastated city, you will be Rebuilt. Look in verse 11 through 17. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. Behold, 
All right, when you see the word behold, we often just kind of overlook it and just keep going. Stop. Because the writer of the Bible wants you to look at something and see something that's worth calling attention to. So the word behold says, look at this. You got to see this. And God is going to say, look what I'm going to do to your devastated city. So what does he say about the devastated city? Behold, this city is going to be beautiful. And then verse 13 through 17, your children are going to live in shalom. Shalom is the best word that we can figure out. It's a Hebrew word. And so we just kind of steal it in English, transliteration, to, to kind of sum up the way it was supposed to be. The way God originally intended for life on earth in the Garden of Eden to be. Shalom. Peace and righteousness. And the best way that Isaiah knows how to get our attention is to say that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, your children can experience life the way it was supposed to be. Parents, is there anything you want more than that? For your children. Like, he bypasses them. He doesn't even say, you are going to get to experience. He just goes right to the heart. Logan and Courtney, Katie, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is going to get to experience life the way God intended it to be. And every parent and grandparent in here knows that that's the deepest longing of our heart. Look how he describes this life. Verse 13, they're all going to be disciples of the Lord. That's what it means when in verse 13 he says, all your children will be taught by the Lord. They're all going to be disciples of the Lord. Look at verse 13 at the end. They're going to experience peace, not just any kind of small peace, but a peace that is great. Verse 14, righteousness like the governing of our society according to the principles of right and wrong established by God, righteousness is going to be established. It is the rule of law. Verse 14 through 17. And oh, by the way, your kids are going to live in a city that is absolutely secure, guaranteed. God says, I'm the one who makes the smith, the guy who makes the weapons, you see down there in, in verse uh, 16, I'm the one who creates the smith, who blows the fire of the coals and makes the weapons. I also create the ravengers who destroy. But here's God's promise to his people. No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. Weapons physical and verbal. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And then he tops it off by saying, This is the heritage for all the servants of the Lord and their vindication, their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. Listen, friends. 
in this second image, we see that just like a devastated city, God will rebuild them. But it's not just Mayfield Strong. It's going to take the miraculous work of God to change them into something different. That's the emphasis here. Lesson number one. These two images in chapter 54, they're meant to show us that we are deserted and devastated. Lesson number two. We are unable to restore and rebuild ourselves. Lesson number three. The gospel of Jesus restores and rebuilds what sin has ruined. And friends, it is the only thing that can restore and rebuild what sin has ruined. Lesson number four. Lesson number four. Bonus. What is restored and rebuilt is somehow better for having been broken. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's Isaiah chapter 54. Do you know what that means, friends? If you will turn... Wait a minute. Please listen to this. If you will turn away from your sin and follow Jesus, then your past and your sin will not permanently damage your future. The gospel of Jesus is so powerful, so transformative, that what it restores and rebuilds is somehow better for having been broken. Do you think God had to come up with a plan B when sin entered the world? This has been plan A all along. It's not as if God created the whole world and put his people in the Garden of Eden and said, this is how it's supposed to be. And then when they blew it, God goes, oh man, it's never going to be as good. Plan A all along was that somehow by restoring and rebuilding sinful people in a sinful world, it's better for having been broken all along. I wouldn't believe that. I would think that that's somehow off. If I didn't have parts of the Bible, and there are more, parts of the Bible like Isaiah chapter 54. Let me, let me prove it to you. Isaiah 
Look how this text shows that the restoration and the rebuilding is better, better. Verse 1. The children that the barren woman has are what? More. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. More. Verse 2. The tent, it's what? Bigger. What do you think all these verbs are meant to say? To the barren woman about her life. It gets better from here. So you better do what? Look at the verbs in verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your curtains. And by the way, don't hold back. Stretch them out. Lengthen the cords on your tent. Strengthen the stakes. Why? Because you're going to need a very big house to hold all of the kids that God is going to give you through the gospel from all over the earth. He says they're going to be all over the place on your right hand and on your left hand. And you thought three, four, or five was a lot. The children are more. The tent is bigger. Oh, man, verse 9 and 10. The covenant is unconditional. The old covenant is conditional, depended on works. No more. The gospel is a, read Hebrews, it is a new and better covenant. Why? Because it is unconditional, it's ratified, it is secured, because why? It's already been fulfilled by the obedience and faithfulness and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are in Christ by faith are now secured in an unconditional covenant. So you see in verse 9 and 10, Whereas God was angry and put away Israel for a while, he says, I'm not going to be angry with you anymore. I will not rebuke you. I I will not, my steadfast love will not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be moved. Friends, this is a better covenant. Verse 11 and 12. The city. It's better. Look, Jerusalem used to be built with stones and clay. Look what God does through the suffering servant. Now, what are his building materials? Antimony, which is a rich black mortar, which he says, I'm going to hold all of the stones. And by the way, the stones are going to be what? Sapphires, which is beautiful. One of my favorite gemstones. Agate which is a colorful quartz, carbuncles, which are deep red gemstones, and, oh, by the way, precious stones, which the rest of the Bible talks most predominantly of emeralds and diamonds. These are now the building materials for the city of God. Why? Because of what the suffering servant did. Listen, the the children are more, the tent is bigger, the covenant is unconditional, the city is better, and look at verse 13, The participation in this covenant is what? Universal. 
those who are part of the new covenant? Key word, all. No longer some. No longer few. No longer people who act like it but aren't. People who think that they're Christians because they were born into the right family. The gospel makes all participants in the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God like? Better than here. The kingdom of God is peace, righteousness, security that's guaranteed, and a heritage that is absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. I think Isaiah 54 is calling us to sing for joy and enlarge our tents. I think Isaiah 54 is calling us to live without fear and shame anymore and to look, behold, what God will do in the future. But friends has already done for us in the past through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we respond to the salvation accomplished by the suffering servant. I hope that you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. I hope that you have turned away from your sin. It's going to get you nowhere. And that you have turned to Jesus. He's the only one that can restore and rebuild what sin has ruined. If you haven't, let's talk after the worship service. If you have, then you've got an assignment this week. Sing. Enlarge your tents. Live without fear and look forward to the future because it's better. Let's pray together. Father, thank you very much for the suffering servant and what the Lord Jesus did in Isaiah 53 and on the cross about 2,000 years ago. It's changed everything and it means that now we can come to Jesus by faith, no longer trusting ourselves to, to rebuild our own lives and pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can't change our sin, but you can. And I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ will, through the power of the gospel, through the response of repentance and faith. And if there's somebody here today who has not turned to Jesus, I pray that you would draw them, just like you wooed and allured all of us, draw them by your grace and by the, the beauty of your love. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.